0: Welcome back to the Better Than Rich Show. I'm your host today, and my name is Mike Abramowitz,
1: and we have a special episode here in season three with Dr. Kelly Flanagan. Now, I'll tell you right now, this is one of those episodes you're probably going to want to have pen and paper and maybe re-listen to it one or two times because Dr. Kelly is the author of the book, Lovable. uh, And I read this book, I devoured this book, and I reached out to Dr. Kelly, I said, I absolutely loved your work. Is there any way you would come on to the Better Than Rich show and speak? And uh, this is an a, incredible interview. If you follow Brene Brown, I, I consider Dr. Kelly like the male version of Brene Brown, where he talks about vulnerability and courage and uh, the relationship with shame. He's going to give some really incredible analogies on how to navigate through shame and self-worth. And and uh, we, we go into a deep dive on polarity of masculine and feminine and his definition Blew my mind of what it means to anchor into masculine energy versus feminine energy. He has two other best-selling books as well that we'll also discuss during the episode, and I really believe that you're going to enjoy this. If you are a male uh, listening to this episode, I, I encourage you to be in a place where you could absorb the information and 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 truly connect to what, what Dr. Kelly is talking about when it comes to the emotions and, and when he talks about the... He uses a great analogy about the, the original self versus the false self. He talks about using almost like a medieval terminology with the, uh, the drawbridge analogy. So if you're male listening to this, I, I think these are going to be really excellent reminders and great tips for you. Uh, if you are a female listening to this episode, I could assure you he is. it's going to feel almost as if he's speaking to you saying, oh my gosh, this is everything that I have been feeling, but it's tough to sometimes put those feelings into words. And I think you're really going to love this. We got a lot of great feedback when we recorded this live. So without further ado, Dr. Kelly Flanagan, pen and paper ready, excited for you to have him talk to you on The Better Than Rich Show.
0: Welcome to The Better Than Rich Show with your hosts, Andrew Biggs and Mike Abramowitz. The Better Than Rich Show helps ambitious leaders who are on a mission to leave the world better than they found it, change their perspective on what's important, increase their income and impact, and systemize their life and business. If you've ever struggled with finding your purpose, have felt disconnected or distracted, or found yourself going through the motions, this show will remind you that what you do matters and will re-inspire you to chase your highest dreams. It's time for you to become better than rich. Dr. Kelly, thank you so much again for being here. For those of you that do not know uh, who Dr. Kelly is, I gave him the name, the male version of Brene Brown. So, uh, if you're not familiar with Brene Brown, then sorry, <laughs> she's pretty fantastic. And, uh, Dr. Kelly spoke to a front row dad event that I was at a couple weeks back. And he actually just like, just blew it away with his, his knowledge and his inspiration and his connection and his delivery. And I, I reached out to Dr. Kelly and he was nice enough to, uh, Lend us some of his time. If you haven't explored Dr. Kelly's website, I highly recommend you to check it out. His focus, the three essentials of a truly satisfying life, your worthiness, your belonging, and your purpose. And it is it is going to be a very impactful conversation that we're going to have around these topics today. If you have not picked up either any of his new his newest book, The Unhiding of Elijah Campbell, or his original book, Lovable, or the one in between the true companions. Fantastic reads that can help you, help your family, no matter what situation you're in. This gentleman knows what he's talking about. So, uh, he also has his wife, Dr. Kelly, who is a child psychologist. And then he has his oldest son, Aiden, who's about to graduate high school or is just graduating high school. His uh, middle son, Quinn, is graduating ninth grade. And his daughter, Caitlin, is going into seventh grade. And you may have read his awesome blog post letter that he wrote to his daughter. It is just a fantastic read. So Dr. Kelly, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we're excited to you know have the conversation and uh, get things rolling. So as a psychologist, and I hope you're not psychoanalyzing me as I have this conversation with you, but I want to dig right in. So one of the concepts that I really loved in your book, Lovable, was when you were talking about our ego or our false self. And I, I think this, this idea is something that every one of us live with. We, we have this false self behind the scenes that's kind of operating all the time. And you, did, you gave a great analogy about the throne and about the ego canon and, and the wall that the ego is kind of hiding behind. And you even use this really beautiful analogy of the drawbridge. Can you start there with the relationship with the false self, the ego, and just this analogy that you also did such a beautiful job in the book talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Mike, thank you, for first of all, for
2: having me here tonight. And thanks to all of you who are here. It is an evening in the middle of summertime, right before the 4th of July. And it is a sacrifice to be here of your time and energies. And I'm just really, I want to honor that. So thank you for having me here. And Mike, there is a time when I would be would have been analyzing you. And that's because there was a time when I spent a lot more time in my false self, <laughs> in my ego. And, and in my ego, I'm Dr. Kelly, who has all the answers and who, you know, can understand everybody else better than they can understand themselves, and what a safe place that is to sort of camp out in for Dr. Kelly. Um, but the truth is, um, more and more, what I'm trying to do is not not live from that safe and protected place. So I can promise you, so far, I've succeeded at that tonight, and I have not, <laughs> not psychoanalyzed you yet. Um, so, yeah, I think for me, the the fundamental truth about being human that is absolutely changed and transformed the way that I see myself, the way that I grow personally, the way that I help others in my coaching practice through their growth, is to recognize that we don't have one self, that we've got two selves. And the hinge between those selves is this experience that we call shame. You called me the male, Brene Brown, and I'm, I'm honored by that comparison. She's certainly influenced my thinking an awful lot. The idea is that we come into the world with a true self, And I even, these days, I refer to it as the original self. It's the self we arrived in the world with. If you're a spiritual person, it was the self that was given to you when you entered into the world. And it was good enough and worthy of love and belonging. It was just a given, a fact. And when you were young, you didn't even question that fact. But at some point, all of us, at some point in life, begin to experience something that we call shame. And it's the message and the belief that we aren't good enough for love and belonging the way that we are. And and when that happens, when we begin to experience that, we do sort of the natural thing as young people, actually, Um, usually, this is starting to happen by five, six, seven years old, even in the best of childhoods, we say to ourselves, essentially, not consciously, but unconsciously, well, hey, if the true self that I have, if the self I was given isn't good enough to be loved and to belong, then I guess I'm going to have to build the self that is. I'm going to have to create a new self that is in charge of going out into the world to earn new love and belonging. And that's when we begin to build our false self. And, you know, as a psychologist and as a coach, I've had to figure out over the years, I mean, true self, false self, like these are sort of murky inner (laughs) concepts, right? And so metaphors really help to get our hands around and our minds around those concepts. And so the concept that seems to have been most helpful for folks over the years is the concept of the false self or the ego, as it's also called, as a castle. And castles are built to protect their inhabitants, right? And so the the false self or the ego castle that we start building in childhood is, as I see it, made of three components. And those are walls, cannons, and thrones. So our ego walls, first of all, we, I'd say we probably most young people start to build their ego walls around third or fourth grade. And this is the, this is the first component of our false self that is sort of designed to hide us away from people, right? We put up our walls, we try to blend in, we hide our uniqueness, because we're afraid that our uniqueness is going to get us nailed again. And so we start to try to blend in. I remember when my oldest came home from like third or fourth grade, and I think he had left the house in like mismatched pairs of socks and you know clothes that didn't match themselves. And he comes home saying, "You know, I I need to wear this brand to school tomorrow. I'm going to be trying to sit with these kids at the lunchroom tomorrow. I need to play this sport at recess." He's starting to build ego walls, ways of sort of blending in with the crowd so that he doesn't pick up any more punishment, any more messages that he's not good enough. And then for most of us young people, sometime around like, I don't know, probably middle school, which is sort of why middle school is a terrible, horrible experience for most young people. We start to add ego cannons to our ego walls. And these are the more aggressive things we do to keep people at a distance. You know, like the walls weren't working. We still felt ashamed. We still felt not good enough. So now we're going to like, we're going to hurt other people to stop them from hurting us. You know, best offense is a good defense sort of idea Um, and so we start to build those ego cannons my wife by the way she says that's a very masculine metaphor and that women's women don't have ego cannons they have archers they put on their ego walls like precision strikes and uh, and so whether it's ego cannons or ego archers we do these more aggressive things in that stage of life to sort of keep ourselves safe and then if all goes well and truly i would imagine everyone here can say that at some point They've added a cannon, or I'm sorry, a throne to the ego castle. And the throne is some place in our life, some situation where we feel like we finally arrived. We have some control. We have some power. We sort of feel like, hey, I've proven I'm good enough. Uh, and so now I don't have to prove it anymore. Everyone should just sort of take that for granted. And the reality is that that, for many of us, goes okay for a while, but at some point, the, the ego castle, the false self begins to create more suffering than it's preventing. And at that point, we begin to, to ask ourselves, what do, what do we do with this thing? Uh, what do we do with the ego castle we've created? And Mike, you know, we talked about in, in Lovable, I mentioned every castle has a drawbridge, a point of vulnerability through which the inhabitants of the castle can exit the castle. There it is. There's Lovable. And and through which we can go out and meet the world more authentically, more nakedly. And so this drawbridge is the point of vulnerability where we begin to step out and show up a little bit more authentically. The castle is always there. The false self is always there. It doesn't mean we tear it down or eradicate it. We can't uncreate what we've created in our false self. But we begin to have a little bit more flexibility about when we sort of hunker down in it to stay safe and when we show up authentically in the world and take some risks.
0: And such a beautiful analogy with this ego castle. And I, I, love, I love the way you explain it. The the curiosity that I'm that I, I'd like to bring to you is how does one know whether they're living in that false self or their or their true self like the the original mm. self the self of worthiness how do I know if it's the facade or if it's the if it's mm. the truth is, is there like uh, symptoms or is there call signs or something that we we could you know be aware of yeah that's a, such a great question I love that.
2: I know one of the, for me personally, one of the signatures of the true self is that the true self knows it's worthy and its worthiness is not judged in comparison to or relative to anyone else. It knows it's absolutely worthy and it knows everyone else is absolutely worthy as well. So I can tell you, how i knew earlier this afternoon in anticipation of this event tonight that my false self was actually at work and this is how i knew last night i was invited to speak to a a small group at a church i was doing this for a friend from high school um she said would you come and speak to our small group at church and i said be happy to do it and i went to the small group at church and it was a very small group. Only two people showed up. One of them was someone with an intellectual disability who sort of confessed that she had bipolar disorder. Two of her children were in jail. The other woman who was there had complex PTSD. It was a beautiful night. It was a gorgeous night with them. Just getting to sit with that, that small group and share some of these ideas. This afternoon, there was a part of me that started to tell me that you all were more important than them, that I should be nervous in front of you all. Because you're Tony Robbins people, <laughs> right? You're not That's these right. two poor, poor ladies off of the church in rural Illinois. And so my false self was somehow starting to make comparisons about judgments about worthiness, right? And so I was able to kind of step back and see that and go, oh, you're feeling a little vulnerable today. Mike's invited you to talk to the Tony Robbins crowd. They're used to really high caliber speakers. And so you're feeling a little bit vulnerable. Maybe a little bit of shame is coming up. Am I going to be good enough? And so my ego's kicking in. And starting to make comparisons, and uh, and so it was just a and, and that's the beautiful thing about the ego, right? Is every time you notice it, you're literally in that moment re inhabiting your true self. Every time you make the observation of your ego talking at work, protecting, defending you, comparing, judging, every time you make that observation, the only part of you that's present to observe the false self is the true self. So in that moment of observation tonight, I was sort of returned to myself and to this beautiful blessed awareness that you all are you all are totally worthy. And so are those folks. And we're all in the same playing field. So to me, that's like there's no better indication of 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 living in that place of of true self is to know our worthiness, to know the equal worthiness of everyone else,
0: and to be without protection. Yeah, that's beautiful. So I am curious on this because ultimately this ego cannon, this castle and everything that you said, we're building this as kids and we're building this armor. We're building these stones. We're doing mm-hmm. this as kids. And something that you did in your book is you wrote these beautiful love letters to your kids. Yeah. And you also mentioned that some of it, adults are the ones yeah. who read those love letters to your kids and the ones that received it, the most weren't actually the kids were these grownups, these, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60 year old people. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that, that the grownups are reading this note that you wrote to your kid and are messaging you by the hundreds saying, Oh, I relate fully to that. I needed to see this. I needed to read this letter. Yeah, that's right. Well, so I was, I'm trained as a clinical
2: psychologist. It's an empirical degree. We're trained as scientists. And so I was not very friendly for many, many years to the concept of the inner child. Didn't seem very hard science <laughs> to me, right? And then I start writing these letters to my kids. My daughter and I wind up on the Today Show. I get paired up with this great literary agent. And, and she says, hey, you're writing these letters to your kids. They're going viral. Millions of people are reading them. You should probably write a parenting book. And so I go home to my wife and I say, who's the child psychologist in our family, by the way. And I say, hey, Kathy, my agent thinks I should write a parenting book. And my wife's like, dude, you have no business writing a parenting book. And she's totally right about that. Almost everything I've learned about parenting, I've learned from her. But it got me thinking, to your point, like, okay, I'm getting yeah hundreds of letters a day at this point from people saying that they, they love these letters. And what are they saying? They're, they're not saying I'm going to save these letters for my daughter, or I'm going to write a letter like this to my granddaughter they're saying, I needed to hear these words. I needed to be reminded that I'm good enough, that I belong, that I matter, that I'm not alone. And it sort of hits me. We all have a little kid inside of us still that is waiting on a love letter. And that's around that time I became a believer in what some called the inner child. But I also really believe that our inner child is also our true self, right? The youngest version of us is the closest version of us to who we were before we started to pick up shame and to build a false self. So I these days I spend in, in terms of my own inner work, I spend as much time in dialogue with and nurturing and coming alongside the little one inside of me as I do anything. I didn't I didn't plan to share this with you, but prior to this this call tonight, I the youngest memory I have of my little little one is about three years old. I'm sitting in a playroom and I've got books open all around me. And they're scattered all over the place. And my dad comes in and he says, you need to put all those books away. It's time for dinner. And I apparently say to him, well, but I'm reading them. I've asked him about the story. I'm reading them and I don't want to put them away. No, I, I want to read them after dinner. He says, nope, you got to put them all away on the shelves before you can come to dinner. So I sit stubbornly in my playroom in the middle of those books. And I go to bed with no dinner. Right. And, uh, and so this is the earliest version of me that I can remember. And, uh, and so before I came on here today, <laughs> I just said, hey, dude we got to go talk to a lot of people about things like true self and false self. And, and he's like, what, what, I don't know anything about those things and I'm shy and I just want to stay in my room with my books. I don't want to go talk to anybody right now. And I'm like, dude, I know. And I appreciate that. We're going to get, you're going to get to go back to your books tomorrow, but tonight it's time to go talk to some folks. And if you go with me, I'm going to just do it. I'm way better than if, if I do it without you, because you are the thoughtful tender sort of sensitive parts of me and if i don't have you there i'm just going to bloviate and act like a you know an expert on everything and that's not going to be any good so i actually had this dialogue while i was in the shower earlier and it was it was very freeing and the little version of me that is a little bit afraid of the world said okay i'll go along
0: with you let's go do this that's beautiful the, the self-talk that you have with your little one, that inner child, is something I think most people, I don't want to say envy, but would love to strengthen that relationship with that version of them. Uh, a part of your book, when you talked, I love the part where you talked about your story with your daughter, when I, I believe when Caitlin was at the table and you went to like hug her and she gave you the stiff mm-hmm. arm and you're like, you were proud of her, but at the same time hurt this like, she created a boundary and yeah. you... We're willing to respond to the boundary and appreciate it and accept it. That's great. But most parents, when their kid gives them a boundary, they look at them as like, how dare you say no to me? Do you know Mm -hmm. who I am? It's almost like this righteousness that are like the authority or the parental in us do that we project onto subordinates or kids or whoever we're parenting. Why, Why do we do that? in the outside world. Do you think it's, we do that in the outside world to people outside of uh, our own inner child, because we're not, we, we're we're still suppressing something that we necessarily haven't necessarily processed within our own inner child or our own little one. Is that why we might project that? Or is there something else that might be there? It's a good question.
2: I think that the ego needs to be in control. Um, And, and I think there's, I I do believe there's something essential as parents about getting reconnected with our own little one, with our own younger self, in order to really kind of resonate with the, the, the sense of dignity of a child, the sense of um, power, the sense of autonomy, the, the the desire to to encourage their sense of worthiness. And so, I think, I remember specifically when she said, "No, you can't give me a hug this morning." My fragile ego got all offended right? And it's like, what it wants to do is say, oh, oh, come on, you know, stop stop being that way. But I saw an opportunity here. I mean, she was, I don't know, she's a couple of years old, three years old at the time, maybe tops. I'm like, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, I want her to know how to stiff arm a guy she doesn't want to hug from, right? That training starts now with her dad, with her dad being able to handle his fragile ego enough to be able to say, hey, yeah, um, if you don't want to hug from a guy right now, you don't have to have a hug, a hug from a guy. And in that story, as I share, it was it was a beautiful moment because I told her that. I said, oh, yeah, if you don't want a hug from bed, you don't have to have one. You could see her sort of wheels turn. She goes, right? She just needed to know she had a choice, that she had power in that moment. And so I think that's so much a part of parenting is from a place of true self, trying to negotiate influence and control and power with our kids, recognizing that we want them to grow into their own. So if we're constantly snuffing it out or suppressing it or telling them they can't exercise it, we're not probably doing them any favors. And yet our role as parents is to guide and influence and to, you know, understand that we have more wisdom than them in a lot of ways. And so it's a, it's a balancing
0: act to find that, that middle ground. Do you think that that's the same for an intimate relationship or something similar there too? where if you have a partner who doesn't Mm. feel like, you know, eggplant donut for the night or, you know, doesn't feel like, you know, cooking, but you're hungry or vice versa, or they don't want to go out. And they have like this stiff arm as like their inner little one is almost like coming out. And instead, we're like treating Mm -hmm. them as like a 50 year old or 40 year old person. Mm where it's really like that inner child that's trying to like speak. And instead of speaking to the little one of our partner, we're speaking to the, you know, false self. Like, is it, is there some potential truth there? Or, you know, I don't know. I think help help me, help me out with what I'm trying to say. I think it's a,
2: I think it's a fantastic question. Um, And I can't think of a situation with an intimate partner, with a companion of any kind, in which it's not helpful to remember that they have a little one living on in them as well. I just can't think of a situation where it's not helpful to keep that in mind. i give you an example. Um This was maybe, I don't know now, a couple months ago, my wife and I are in a situation now where we both have plug-in cars, but we only have one plug in the garage. And so we ran into a situation for the first time ever where I was about to take a long distance trip. She'd unplug my car and plugged it into hers. And now my car wasn't charged for the trip. And I was running late, and I needed to get out the door. And the little kid in me was feeling all alone, like, oh, i got to take care of myself completely again, just like I had to when I was a kid and, and all of that. And uh, I got really I got really frustrated, and then I was rushed. And anyway, so I'm pulling out of the driveway. She's coming back from her morning run, and we had had a very nice morning up to that point. right? She's coming back from her morning run, and I'm running up the hill, or I'm driving up the hill, and I sort of do this blow-by with the window down. Like, you unplugged my car. I wasn't charged. Now I got to take yours. And I blow by her, right? I look in the rear view mirror and my wife, God bless her. She's standing in the middle of our road, double bird. F you! Just screaming. right? And my, my first reaction to that, my second reaction to that is sort of, there's a joyfulness in that that she was willing to stand up for herself. Now, the next part was really interesting. She then texts me, and she says, hey, when you get home, you need to apologize to your daughter. You really upset her when you were you know, rustling around in the garage. I had this thought, like, I don't think my daughter even knew what I was doing in the garage. Oh, it's the little girl in her that was really startled and disturbed by what just happened. And so now this is what this is the difference. I would have gone home and I would have said to my daughter, which I did, hey sweetie, did I upset you this morning? No, I didn't even know what you were doing. And then I would have gone to my wife and argued with her, right? And told her, You're nuts. She wasn't upset. You know, why did you say that? Instead, I'm able to sit there and go, Yeah. I mean, she there was a little girl who was upset by what happened today, but it was the little girl inside my badass enneagram eight wife who is tough as nails and isn't probably gonna talk too much about her sense of vulnerability like that's in there and so it served me well to be aware of that and i just can't imagine a situation where it doesn't serve us well to go every person that i'm in interaction with today has a little one inside of them that is still sort of asking the question am i good enough am i worthy of love and belonging and at some level trying to protect against being told that they're not so i just think it's helpful
0: to keep that in mind I'm interested in this uh, this topic with the relationships. So I'm going to ask the two questions because one is going to stay on the topic and one is going to segue a little bit away. The first one is under the umbrella of in this relationship, let's say you're having this this conversation, whether as a parent or with a significant other or subordinate of some sort. And you do hurt their feelings. You do say something that hurts their feelings Mm -hmm. or your feelings get hurt. Is there a way for you to like, how can someone navigate through this need to be accepted? Like, I don't want to hurt. Like, I don't, I I need to Mm. be accepted by you, but I also want to remain true to my authentic self. Like, I know what I'm doing is, is right or Mm. not, you know, not righteous, but I know it's right and I'm doing it for the greater good but you're pissed at me for doing it for the greater good and i want to remain true to my authentic self but i also want you to accept me and it's like Mm -hmm. how can someone navigate remaining true to their authentic self while in turn doing the right thing which might break the rule of feeling accepted with a lot of which Mm -hmm. a lot of people tie worthiness to acceptance so that's like question one and then the question two that I want to kind of go on a tangent on is with the relationship is to maintain polarity because obviously you know we want to create polarity between masculine and feminine I'd love to hear from you Mm -hmm. on on your definition on masculine and feminine and how that ties in because with us Tony Robbins we went to date with destiny there's a whole relationship day on polarity and I'd like to kind of see your your take on some of that so Those those are the two questions that I just unloaded on you. Hopefully, that you you
1: know. Yeah.
0: Well, if I get lost in the first part, you'll have to remind me what the second part is. Maybe. Yeah, sounds um,
1: great.
2: So, I I don't I can't remember if I told this anecdote in um in lovable, but it was shared with me at a at a public event by a philosopher theologian Peter Rollins, and I sort of took it and used it for my own purposes here. The, the The joke is this guy goes to a psychoanalyst. And he says, hey, doc, I think I'm chicken feet on the ground. And it's a terrifying way to live. Can you help me with that? The psychoanalyst says, yeah, let's get to work. So he sees them every day, like a psychoanalyst, you know, five times a week for several years. And the psychoanalyst finally declares him healed. He says, you know who you are now. You know you're a human being. You're not chicken feet on the ground. You're good to go. I discharge you. So the guy calls the the doctor about a week later and says, doc, doc, I need to come back in and see you right away. Uh, And the doctor says, what's wrong? He says, well, I have new neighbors who moved in next door and they've got chickens. And the doctor says, well, what's the problem? You know, you're not chicken feet on the ground. And the guy says, I know I'm not chicken feet on the ground, but do the chickens know? And the the way I appropriate the story is to say a lot of us are walking around aware of our worthiness. But the question is, do the chickens know? right? And so that's absolutely the tension a lot of us are living in, is I'm true to myself. I'm residing in my sense of worthiness, but that's not going to be received well by a lot of the people around me. They might still peck at me in various ways. And that can can still be painful. That can still be painful. I think that's the, the most important thing to communicate here, that when we sort of inhabit our true self, it's not an arrival at which pain is over and pain is done. Okay, now I get to live blissed out in my true self. There's an awful lot of pain that follows on the heels of living in our true self because our true self is sort of a filter that selects for people in our life. And when we inhabit our true self, a lot of people who are sort of depending upon us, you know, existing behind those walls, people pleasing, you know, chameleoning and all of that, they're not going to be thrilled with that. So, just an encouragement that, that those two things aren't mutually exclusive, that arriving in our true self and expressing it in the world sometimes sort of engenders a backlash, and that's okay. The goal is to remember that we're not chicken feet on the ground, that we can continue to, to live from that true self and trust that we're good enough anyways.
0: Yeah, I like that. It's, you know, because it's true. Like, if you, if, Even if you were doing the work, I mean, how many of us could relate listening to this where it's like, oh, I'm doing all this work, especially when you go to a personal growth event. It's like you go to this personal growth event, you come back, and it's like, oh, you're just saying the shit that they told you to say. You know, oh, you're brainwashed now. It's like, no, no, like I've actually done some work on myself. But actually, like pecking, something's actually shifted. Yeah. yeah something's shifted in there. Sometimes makes us feel incongruent with what we deem as our authentic self, but we're not getting accepted by the people in our lives for being our authentic self. So now it feels like there's incongruency. And how wow. does. How does one, you know, remind themselves of, of that? Like, how do I stay true to that authentic self? Is there, is there, do you have a tool or a practice that might be able to help them that? And then we'll go to the second part of that other question that I asked. Mm. So
2: this is what I'd say. The most powerful practice probably that I've been practicing it now for a year and a half. And it comes out of reading, inspired by, to some extent, reading Michael Singer's great book, Untethered Soul. I made the New Year's resolution in going into 2021 that my it was simple. I was going to be mindful of as as many moments as possible, as possible in which my heart was closing. In other words, in which my ego castle was you know uh, pulling up the drawbridge, basically and hunkering down, and try to be mindful of as many moments of those as possible. And then in that moment, try to open my heart back up to the moment. And the practice that developed over the course of the year, and then I'm still practicing. First of all, there was an awareness that, that emerged, which is the ego, when it's protecting us, is always doing one of two things. It's either resisting an experience or it's attaching to an experience. It's saying, I don't want it this way, or I do want it this way, right? So my practice became, at least internally and sometimes externally too, if there was no one around or if it was an appropriate setting, when I would feel my heart start to close to a situation. In other words, my true self feeling threatened. Um, I would hold out my hands, one hand palm out saying, stop, and the other one grasping at something and saying, okay, what what experience am I resisting right now? And what experience am I holding on to right now? So maybe I'm resisting this feeling of rejection. Maybe I'm holding on to the sense of approval that I think I've earned by being such a good boy. (laughs) And what would it look like? Big deep breath. To just open up to this experience and receive it, to not resist it, to not attach to something else, To just open up and receive it. And an and an image emerged for me over the year. For a long time, I thought of my true self as like a, a younger version of me. sort of in there, like the, you know, one of those Russian dolls, and you take it apart, and it's tinier and tinier. But this image started to emerge of my true self, not as a younger me, but as sort of a a window that I can either open or close. A window in the center of me, and that my My calling here on this planet is to keep that window open as much as possible. So the experience of being human, no matter what that experience is, rejection, disapproval, pain, loss can flow through me and be experienced. So what's the experience that I'm resisting in this moment? What's the experience that I'm holding on to and wishing I had instead? Big deep breath. What if I allow this experience to flow through me to receive it? And what I can tell you is that when I'm able to do that, when I'm able to have the wherewithal space to do that, my reaction to the situation is always wiser, it's more patient, it's more curious, it's more empathic. It's, you know, I mean, it's all of those beautiful things that are sort of embedded in our true self. And uh, so I hope that answers your question, but it's a practice that I've I've been doing and it's had great power for
0: me, so I want to share it with you. I love that the, the window analogy as a, open and allowing the experience to flow through you and fully receiving the experience versus trying to avoid it or attach to it or hold on to it. So I, I really love that.
1: Well,
2: and to bring it home to today, I mean, to be honest, with feel like going into this afternoon, I feel a little emotional about this. My, my oldest, my son hadn't talked to me. I said something to him that was really hurtful. I didn't know it was hurtful and I didn't understand why it was, but we sat down for an hour this afternoon on the back deck. And that's what I had to practice. I just had to practice this openness because I knew I was going to hear some things that hurt, some things I wanted to defend, some things that I wanted to disprove um, and that that was just going to hurt him more. And and so I needed to, what am I resisting? What he's about to tell me, what do I wish it was instead? And How do I just open the window and receive this? And it was really, I mean, it was a beautiful hour. I feel more connected to him than I have in a long time, but I could have done great damage by resisting it or attaching to something else.
0: Mm, that's beautiful. And, and and what you're demonstrating is the ability to tap into the the polarities, which is, was coming back to that initial question, right. which is the feminine and masculine energy, because you're, e. you're aware of which energetic needs to be called forward at the appropriate e. moment. When to, Embrace the feminine and when to also call forward that masculine. When do I need to stay stationary and stay firm? And when do I need to be a little bit more fluid and and open? And that's why I'd love to hear how do you define masculine and feminine from Mm. your lens? And what creates the environment for each of them to exist? Because I know some people hear masculine, feminine, I think male, female. Like I'd like to speak to that. And how do you create the environment for each of those to exist? Yeah. Wow. That's a great question. So
2: I remember a conversation I was having with somebody years ago and I, I said, oh, like, hold on. It, it seems like every time we talk about you know, toxic masculinity and ma- masculine energy getting healthier, it seems like we just end up talking about feminine energy. So is there any difference between like, is it all just one energy? I'll never forget what he said. And it's shaped my thinking about this ever since. He said, it's all just the soul's energy but used for different purposes. The purpose of the soul's energy when it's in a masculine energetic space is to go somewhere, to accomplish something, to do. I I joke that that's why the arrow on the masculine, on the male symbol is pointing up to the sky. There's, There's goals and visions to achieve. It's about accomplishing. It's about getting from point A to point B. Whereas feminine energy is a soul's energy specifically focused on not getting to point B, but cultivating a depth in point A, right where we're at, creating and holding space for nurturance and depth and what is rather than what could be. And so that's how I sort of, and ironically, the, the symbol for female, right, is a cross rooted in the ground, rooted in this moment in point A. And so that's sort of how I understand those two energies. And I think i I would love to have a conversation about I don't think I have all the I, I don't even pretend to think I have the answers on this. Um, i I believe that our calling each of us is to be able to cultivate as much of a balance between those energies in each of us as we can. Um, and a flexibility. And sort of wisdom about how to call upon those energies when we need them. So I think, I think polarities, as you describe them, polarities attract the opposite, right? So if we have cultivated primarily our masculine energy, we will attract someone who's primarily cultivated their feminine energy. And again, we're departed from gender ideas here. We're just talking strictly about the energies. This can be friendships companionship, marriage, whatever. So what happens oftentimes is those who have cultivated strong masculine energy, they attract strong feminine energy, and then they get so frustrated with that feminine energy. (laughs) It's like, come on, I want to have a visioning conversation. I want to, you know, review our goals for the coming year and talk about how we're going to execute on them. And the person with the feminine energy is like, oh my gosh, could we not have an agenda for one moment and just be, right? And, And then vice versa, of course. And so What I what I believe is that if we can cultivate a fairly healthy balance of masculine and feminine energy in ourselves, we will also attract people who have a relatively healthy balance of masculine and feminine energy. And then we can sort of work with and honor the other person's energy. We can trade off kind of the sharing of those energies. When do you need to lead with the masculine? I can lead with the feminine. When do we both need to be in a more feminine space? It's interesting you said you know this is coming right on the heels of me sharing about my son because in hindsight. The morning that I said it, two Monday mornings ago, I was in an exceedingly masculine energy, like way out of whack. And I approached him with that when what he was needing was some feminine energy. So, what I needed to provide him today was that. And now that you said, like, now that we're talking about it, I realized at the very end of our conversation, I said, Can I offer a suggestion? Which was me saying, Can I, are you ready for me to offer a little bit of masculine energy here? How I think you might be able to get from point A to point B. And at that point, He's like, yeah, like there'd been enough safety and space to, to sort of feel like that was okay. Um, so yeah, I, for me, it's that cultivation of balance and the attraction of balance and the ability to fluidly work amongst companions with both of those energies and understand them both and offer both.
0: It's uh, I love that explanation of the the masculine is going towards from you know towards the point B where the feminine is staying. Like let's let's really get more depth in point A. I have a curiosity is, my my curiosity is, is if someone's immature in their masculine, there's almost like that destructive or the toxic masculine, or there's that destructive or toxic feminine, is there a conflict resolution or conflict strategy that you can maybe bring to the surface? Because obviously if someone is Mm. immature in that style and they're really on the opposite end in the spectrum, they're really it's sometimes it's hard to meet them where they're at. And Mm -hmm. then we don't want to get triggered to where they bring us on this emotional journey with them, but we also don't want to retreat where we completely fall prey. So is there a conflict resolution that you find works well, if someone is in the toxic or the immature of either of those?
2: Mm, That's a really good question. I believe most great conflict resolution happens within us not between us it's really great when both people are taking the responsibility for that right so if you're in an interaction where so if a person's imbalanced masculine energy was causing a lot of problems um, causing a lot of damage and they were willing to take responsibility for addressing that that imbalance and that toxicity that would be great um i don't know that you see a lot of success in convincing or coercing somebody who's in that space to take responsibility for their own and kind of work with you on that um and so i think in that situation it's a matter of asking ourselves how do we want to show up to that what does it look like to give a stiff arm if we need to what's it look like to hold space like for me in a helper role if someone's showing up for instance like if i'm coaching someone i believe my i believe by the way my I think it's simple for me as a coach. My personal responsibility is to stay in a healthy balance of masculine and feminine energy. That the coaching in the growth space is accelerated by creating space to hold what is and accept what is, and also imagine and strive for what's possible, and still holding that healthy balance. If someone's coming into that space with me and they are, you know, they're on hyperdrive. They they want to get from point A to point B in 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 two days, and they think. Everybody's a failure who doesn't. And you know, Anybody who gets in their way is a problem. I'm probably going to go way feminine energy on that um, in order to create space to explore what's underneath that. Like, I just want to understand what it's like if we don't get there in the next two meetings. I want to understand where did the idea come from that things have to go so fast? You know, What's it going to be like? Can, I, can we still be in relationship if, if I don't go at that speed with you? I'm going to just want to cr- get curious and, and really hold space for that energy, and to do so in the healthiest way possible, without fear and without a sense that I need to change or protect, but just sort of show up to that energy as authentically as I can. That feminine capacity to hold.
0: Yeah, I, I love what you said. Is just is is cure. Be cure as curious as you possibly can in order to understand where they are in that moment. Yes. So you. So if they're on the extreme feminine or they extreme masculine you would err more towards this curiosity and understanding or. And someone, someone said something to me recently. I wish I could attribute it,
2: that extreme masculine energy is afraid of feminine energy. It's afraid. It it believes that, Oh my gosh, if you slow down, if you just create space, you'll get bogged down into depression, right? If you feel a little bit of sadness, it's going to deepen into something that's intractable. It's terrified that holding space is going to devolve into failure, uh, stagnation, depression, and these sorts of things. And so, by holding that that feminine space in a healthy way, you actually give that masculine energy an experience of feminine energy that is healthy. That it doesn't feel doesn't feel stagnant and unhealthy. But it feels like moving forward, anyways. And at the end of it, you might say, "Hey, uh, did we really?" Get anywhere today, so to speak? No. Do you feel? Do you feel better? Do you feel like something shifted here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's because not all, not all shifts and not all growth involve a point A to point B uh, experience. Some involve a deepening of point A, and and so to get to learn that experientially can be really powerful. But ultimately, it's not totally up to you that they receive that experience, and that's something that we have to be willing to accept as well.
0: That's a great response. It's a beautiful response, Dr. Kelly. I appreciate that. Before we head for the exits, I got a couple other questions. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, that's great. So so I really appreciate you you sharing such awesome wisdom with us. And this is a masterclass and really just emotional intelligence. This is what you're giving us right now and, and self-awareness and how we can become just more of our authentic self that we're, we're here to be. So thank you for this. And I, I know... S- one of the things I I talk about, and I, I love your take on, is just the influence of everything that's around us. Specifically, social media, the influence of ads, everything, all the information that's coming mm-hmm. to us. You know, right now, the media is, you know, has a certain agendas that they're pushing, and then big, big business has their certain agendas that they're, they're pushing. And when we're trying to raise our kids, or you know, our, bring our raise our businesses, raise our standards in this environment. Sometimes it's hard to keep their focus because they're being influenced by everything that's around them. So what are you doing for your kids specifically or what you do for your Eat. staff to keep their focus on some of yeah. this some of these things that you're talking about with us today? Yeah, it's a great
2: question. Well, I could Specifically with regard to our kids, and this is where I say again, I give my wife a lot of credit for this. Um, I, I sort of brought the masculine energy, so to speak, and said, we, we really need to do something about the kids' phone use. We need a, we need a culture in our family that's better defined around devices. We need, we need a contract of some sort. And her great wisdom was to say, yes, let's do it, but let's make sure every step of the way it's collaborative. Every step of the way, it's collaborative with the kids so that they feel like co-equals in in developing it. Because if they feel like it's forced upon them, the chances that they actually follow through with it are are pretty slim. So um, what I'd say is we started off, we actually have a written device contract in our house. And we, we started off with a statement about how we relate our relationship to our devices and to media. And, and what we say is that we, we agree, collectively as a family, that our devices are primarily meant for communication and productivity tools, and only secondarily for entertainment devices. But that the makers of those devices want us to begin to use them for more for entertainment. And so we're going to be conscious of that, of all the ways that we sort of get enticed to stay on the devices. Those three little dots that show up when someone's texting you back, just to keep you there waiting for them. <laughs> That's all. Just more time on the device. Um, because if you stay on the device, you're gonna go to another app that has advertisements and everything else. So um we started with that. We got thumbs up on that and then we went through each of the principles, you know, when our devices will be in a basket, will they be allowed at dinner time? All of these different principles. And with every one we had to we had to get five, four at the time, four thumbs ups. Um, two, two parents and two kids. And if there was any thumbs down, we'd have a conversation, a collaborative conversation about how would you change this item um, to make it. And, it, you know, with the kids, it was almost always about, well, we feel like this favors you as adults. Why do you guys get to do that on your devices and we don't, right? They wanted some some fairness and equality. And I, they almost always had a good point point. they're calling us out. So anyways, the contract ended up uh, being a collaborative effort. and I think that's so important that we have buy-in from everybody all the stakeholders and an understanding a mutual understanding about what these things are, what they're wanting to do to our schedules, scheduling themselves into our minds and, and how we can begin to put fences and limits
0: around that. Cause I'm like over here taking notes. I, I love the written communicate, the written statement, the communication, pro, this is a communication productivity tool and its second source is for entertainment and the business of this device is to keep you on here as long as possible. So everything that yeah. you're getting exposed to is to keep you on the device. So by you having that awareness, creating that statement, I love the principles for the device, when we use it, where we use it, how often we use it, and creating that mutual
2: understanding. Well, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. And the, the, maybe the piece that I would add there, and this is borrowed from Cal Newport, I think it's the book Digital Minimalism, is to also ask, is this tool the best way to communicate? Is this tool the best way to be productive? So theoretically, you know, anyone in your ecosystem could argue, well, Facebook is my way of communicating with my, my people. Um, well, what does communication mean? Um, just telling, just giving someone a digital thumbs up, is that the quality of communication we're ultimately looking for in our family? Or would it be better just to, instead of giving 10 thumbs ups on Facebook this afternoon, would it be better to call one friend and actually have a conversation? and actually communicate. So getting really clear about not just your your values, but what are the best ways to execute on those values. And some of these t- these tools are not the best way to to actually execute on the values.
0: I really love what you just did there. And it's, it was so subtle, but you took it back back to what is the meaning of the word communication? Yeah. And, right. and I, I noticed how you did that so many times in your book. And I took so many notes on that. Like you said, mm-hmm. the, the word courage from the word core <laughs> which many people believe it's heart, but you said it's really core, like the core of ourself, like the center to be at the center of our core with some sort of direction. Mm -hmm. I really found that fascinating. Like passion, you said passion comes from to suffer and to suffer, to ache, to, 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 and then compassion is to suffer with, and it's like, yes. if you break down the, the actual meaning of the words that we're using in the language, we could almost decipher the mystery of what we're, what their, mm. their meanings are. And I thought you just did a beautiful job in your book and lovable on how to do that. And I like that you love that you just did that again with, well, what are we trying to accomplish with communication? What does communication actually mean? Mm -hmm. Is is this the best way to communicate? So I just wanted to bring attention to that. That was beautiful. Thank you, Mike. I'm really grateful for that. The author in
2: me and that little one in me sitting in all the books, loving his words. Very honored in you saying that. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Well, it's masterfully done, and I truly, truly am loving this conversation. Selfishly, ninety-eight percent of these questions I'm asking are for me, so it's really uh, thank you for you know <laughs> filling my mind with what I wanted to know. And then the other, maybe one or two questions are are there for everybody else who happens to be listening to this recording. And so we probably have time for maybe one more question before we head for the exits. And I'll see if there's anything in the chat. So mm. Matt asked a great question. So, Um, yeah, Matt, dad, fellow front row dad, Matt. You're right on. So how do we help our kids as they grow up and move through the stages of castle building to stay within their original self? And um, that that is a really beautiful question. And we also have a second question. Scott posed, what are the tools to overcome shame? So if you want to tackle those last two. And then we'll, we'll yeah. head for the exits. I appreciate it, Dr. Kelly. So those two tiny questions? Okay. Yeah, let's yeah, do that. Yeah, small questions. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, Matt asked such an
2: important question. And I think one of the things that we need to remember is that actually building that ego castle is a part of normal, healthy development. That while eventually the ego begins to outlast its usefulness and starts to cause more suffering than it's preventing, at first, it's actually quite a bit. And it's a normal part of development. So when we see our kids doing it, we don't want to discourage the creation of their ego. Because ironically, what we'll be doing, we'll be shaming them for building an ego. And now they're building an ego because they're ashamed. (laughs) So now we're giving them more reason for ego if we're shaming them for building it. And so what we really want to do, and I appreciate the question, Matt, um, because you tie it back into that original self. And the hope is that what we can do is we can continue to be and maintain our, role as mirrors of our kids original self their true self we're the only ones who have been there from the beginning we're the only ones who remember them all along and we continue to reflect that back to them and mirror that back to them so that one day when they realize this ego that i've built isn't serving me anymore the journey back to their true self won't be so obscure it won't be so hard to remember who they are we will have kept that image of them alive and so my encouragement, Matt, to every parent is um, it's it's hard as a parent to watch your kids start to build that false self and become somebody other than who you you know, love them to be. Try to love the process of building the ego as well and stay focused on reflecting back to them who they are underneath that, the lovable thing that they've always been, so that you keep that alive for them when they're ready to return to it that would be my first
0: my my thought. Um, and I, that's a whole hour we could, we could talk yeah, about that. That's a cool, a I love, I love that. I just want to make sure I echo the the mirror of their true self. And because you've raised them in the case of the parent, you know what that authentic self is, assuming you raised them and you, you know, you've been a part of their life. So being a mirror of that, I never heard that before. I love that. So that's it. Well, and in my kids, they've, my oldest, at least has read
2: lovable. I don't think my second has gotten through it, but my oldest. And so I'll say to him, like, Hey dude. <laughs> enough cannons for today (laughs) like let's just name it this is what's happening yeah it's a little too much i'm sort of done for today and uh, i love i love you and i love what's what's behind those cannons but i I just i can't really take any more today so Mm -hmm. it's sort of acknowledging and working with it and playing with it is it's important
0: yeah that's that's beautiful because too many too many parents are probably going to use you know shame or guilt or something to kind of prove a point or you know project some sort of insecurity on them or maybe even just use like name calling, like you little jerk off, you know, whatever, you know, call them a name,
2: you know, it's. Egos, egos are triggers for other egos. So recognize as your kids get into that ego building stage, they're going to start triggering yours. Right. And now, I mean, spiritual, spiritual work of, of, releasing your own ego is in full force when
1: you're raising adolescents and young adults for sure. And that's a great final question, which are,
0: you got it. What are your favorite, what are your favorite tools that we could use to help navigate or overcome uh, shame? Yeah. So number one,
2: first most important thing is until we begin to recognize shame for what it is, it doesn't feel like it's shame. It just feels like it's the truth about who we are. It's just constantly narrating our lives and so it's really important to create some, some separation from it identity-wise. And so we begin just by listening to it. Just listen to that voice of shame constantly going. Mind still goes, Kelly, you're not interesting enough. Everybody's going to get bored and forget about you. And you know, you're know you going to end up alone. I mean, it's just constant, right? And so beginning to listen for that voice and begin to experience it as something that it's not you, but is your shame droning on and on inside of you. Now you've created a little bit of separation right? It's a little bit of separation from it. And then at that point, you can do two things. Um, Number one, you're going to invite it to sort of quiet down a little bit. (laughs) All right. I get it. You're saying the same thing. You listen long enough, it actually can become a little boring. So it helps it to quiet down a little bit. But then you do two things. Number one, shame is essentially experientially, it's the urge to hide. It's the sense that I'm broken, I'm bad, and I need to hide what I am. So every time you share your shame with somebody, you tell somebody who's relatively understanding, hey, I'm ashamed of this, your shame loses its power. It's the urge to hide, and it's also fueled by hiding. And so as soon as we name it and expose it and say it in a relatively safe space, it's robbed of that fuel. So that's you. And this is where Bernie Brown has just knocked it out of the park in terms of talking about vulnerability, right? Vulnerability is just saying this thing we're ashamed about showing up. And recognizing that as soon as we expose it to the light, the shame loses its power. So number one, I would say that. And then number two, when we begin to recognize that there's a voice droning on in us and a pretty loud one, I talk about this a lot in Lovable, we have an opportunity to invite in other voices, other inner voices. And I call it the voice of grace, the alternative to the voice of shame, the voice of grace. And I got to tell you, I am always, when I hear the voice of grace, I am always blown away. It comes out of left field. It's a thought in me that I can't imagine having come from myself. Um, And uh, it's always a a lovely antidote to what my shame is telling me. And so I encourage folks, differentiate from the voice of shame, allow it to quiet down, start to listen for a different voice. I got an email here recently from someone who said, I read Lovable almost five years ago, I've been listening for the voice of grace, and I just heard it for the first time I heard it, and now I can't unhear it, right? So it's that process of listening for a better voice within in addition to just naming that shame to somebody, robbing
0: it of his power. I, I love that. And you talk about it in the book, like you have your best friend, shame, shame was the best friend. I didn't know where you're going with right. it. You it. You did such a methodical way. And then you, you said, I'm going to break off the relationship. And you said you, you, if I, you could correct me if I'm wrong, you wrote the book, but it's through forgiveness, but not reconciliation. And you kind of right. did an example there of like, we're not going to reconcile this relationship because it's only one sided. I'm just going to forgive you because it's all that I can control. It's not yes. really a conversation. It was really beautiful the way you explained that in the book. Yeah. I don't know that. I don't know that like a lot of resistance to
2: shame helps. It's just resistance is more the ego's way of trying to deal with shame. And so, Forgiveness of that shame voice, right? Forgiveness of those who helped create it, of the world. and But simply saying, we're just not going to, we're not going to be best buddies anymore. I'm not going to let you sort of get away with telling me those things about myself anymore. But uh, other than that, you know, I don't think we need to resist it too much. We actually just need to be gentle with it.
0: Wow. Dr. Kelly. Thank you so, so much. If if every if people wanted to stay in touch with you beyond this conversation, you know, I, I think uh, I went and found your mini course on your website at drkflanagan.com. And then also your blog has incredible resources. Is there anything else in addition to you know people would want that you would want some people to know?
2: Yeah, I mean the website is a great place to go to right now. You'll see in that main header area. That, that opportunity to get free access to the love Bubble mini course that'll get you on my email list uh, about once a month i send out an email saying hey this is the new blog post i've written i think we're at about 400 plus blog posts at this point so there's all sorts of great free reading material there I've been told I should quit blogging because blogging is dead, but it's not dead in me. I love it. It's still a wonderful way to connect with my tribe. And I'm just I have a great time doing it. And then there's a there's a book tab on that page and uh, that'll take you to the book page. It's for lovable, for true companions, and for the unhiding of Elisha Campbell, my first novel, which is coming out, which is a lived example of a guy following his passion, even when it doesn't make a ton of sense to jump into fiction. But I just had I had so much fun with it and I can't wait to get it into people's hands. It comes out October 18th.
0: And and I did see there's a you have a free excerpt. So if somebody wanted to read like yes. the first little bit of that book, where where could they That's find right. the excerpt of the of your first novel that you're putting out? Yeah, so it, I I published it as a blog post. I published the prologue as an excerpt on the blog. So you go
2: to the blog there that that site you just showed. Um, I think it's I think it's the top blog post right now. And then at the end of the blog post, there's the link to click to download a PDF of the first chapter. So you basically get the first two chapters. And I'm um, yeah I just um dying to get this out
0: there so thanks for coming by and checking it out yeah we'll we'll definitely be sure to pick up a bunch of copies and and again if you haven't picked up lovable fantastic place to start i'm excited to dive into true companions myself Mm -hmm. october 18th we'll mark our calendars and you know the two millimeter club better than rich well all of us i'm sure we'll make Mm -hmm. our way to amazon is that the best place to get it or through the website or you can go to the the webpage
2: on hidingbook.com unhidingbook.com. And and you'll see a place where you can purchase it at a bunch of click order. You get all your different purchase options, but I can track some of that. And yes, pretty much everybody chooses Amazon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> unhidingbook.com. Thanks Unhiding so much Book again, there. Dr. Kelly. We appreciate you. Thank you. And thank your wife. To, to, to thank the other Dr. Kelly. <laughs> the other Dr. <laughs> Kelly. Dr. Kelly, Dr. Kelly, for giving us you and, and your kids. So thanks again. Will and uh, we appreciate it. Right. All right. Thanks, everybody. Blessings upon your evening. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the show, please share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and review to catch all the latest from us. You can follow us on Instagram at better than underscore rich and join our Facebook group at the better than rich show. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time. And remember, leave today better than you found it.
1: Do you want to win back 13 to 37 hours of your week every single week? If you do, uh, please join us. We are going to be teaching the foolproof method to identifying the bottleneck in your business and teaching you how to resolve it. We're going to teach you all about our three epiphanies around systems. Mike, where can people learn more and tell them about the the program? Well, you're going to want to go to
0: AutomateDelegateSystemize.com and you will learn our three epiphanies, which is automation sequencing, how to delegate and use a virtual assistant, and how to step back as a CEO using strategic retreat. So, again, go to automate That's automate systemize.com and get more information now.